Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to a more perfect union. I'm Nick Remesong. Joining this week uh, from our radio roundtable of regulars, we have Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, our Representative Jeff Roy, along with my co-host Chris Wolfe, and as always, our station manager Peter Jay. We discuss the challenges of local news coverage. Specifically, are we facing a local news desert? And in many places, that's unfortunately the case. And we're very happy to have with us to discuss this, Steve Sherlock of Franklin Matters, Alan Earls of the Franklin Observer, and also joining us will be Martin Luttrell, the dedicated former longtime reporter for the Worcester Telegram and Gazette. Thank you for everybody for being with us today. We're going to kick it off. You know, having that daily coverage is something that uh, I think is uh, sorely missing and uh, you know, I, I look at the Milford Daily News today. Now, my history with the Milford Daily News is I was a paper boy uh, delivering those papers, and they were, they were very thick, uh, you know, probably 30, 40 pages on a daily basis. And uh, today you pick up the Milford Daily News and you have to search deeply to find any local stories. It's mostly a recantation of what's happening uh, in the USA Today, publication, uh, probably because uh, Gannett, which owns uh, both of the papers, uh, um, ha has taken over. So uh, I'm deeply concerned. You know, state coverage is, is pretty good. It's not as, uh, not as dense as it once was. Uh, you know, we have actually in the House chamber, we have a gallery uh, that's for press. And uh, amazingly, you very rarely see press in there. I mean, granted, uh, our proceedings are all uh, streamed live, so somebody can uh, watch what's going on in the House of Representatives uh, from uh, their living room, but you don't get to see the activity on the floor unless you're sitting up in the gallery. Uh, so I've seen somewhat of a change there, but there is more state coverage, and certainly on the national level, uh, there's extraordinary coverage. And the irony to me is the local government affects you far more than most of the state and national activity, and it gets the least amount of coverage. So that's how I tee it up, and I would love to hear from the experts. Yeah, I would agree. And, and the, uh, during the, the time that you referred to, uh, I know that when I was working in, out of the Milford office of the, what was then the Middlesex News in the 80s, uh, Franklin had uh, the Milford Daily News, the Woonsocket Call, the Middlesex News, and sometimes the Attleboro Sun Chronicle, depending what the issues might be, would come to uh, cover those meetings. Uh, board of Selectmen, School Board, Planning Board, 
all those boards make decisions that uh, directly impact the residents of the communities. When you have a number of reporters competing, they're doing their best to to uh, uh, ask questions, uh, look at the issues as uh, in depth, uh, and uh, explain them as well as possible. And it benefits it benefits the uh, it benefits uh, the community, and it uh, fosters uh, uh, trust in in the local institutions. Alan, I'd like to uh, chime in here also and just focus on on. Uh what you were saying about uh, Middlesex and Middle, Milford Daily News and so on. And, and maybe, Martin, you could also verify for me. But uh, I have a, on fair understanding that the very first newspaper that actually went online on the Internet was the Middlesex Daily News. Uh, and okay. I got that from a couple of sources. Now, I, I don't know exactly what qualifies that, but that's my understanding. I think that's true. Because I, I know the yeah. person, I can't think of her name, but I, I know her who, who did that. So I that can, gets I, us to the point, you know, the Internet is both our blessing and our bane. In other words, it allows uh, reporters perhaps to jump into open meetings that are remote available by Zoom. So we may not see their physical presence in the room, but they may be there. But again, uh, it isn't quite the same as being able to follow up and have discussions with uh, panelists to get more detail after the fact. And Pete, you also, there's no opportunity for these reporters to bump into one of the uh, political players in the hallway, uh, on the floor, in their office. Uh, those exchanges are just as vital as uh, what takes place uh, in the meeting itself. And uh, a lot of that uh, gets lost in the process. And, and Martin, thanks for bringing up the Attleboro Sun. I had forgotten there was they were also a, a key player in this, uh, in the area. I was just going to pick up on what Jeff said about how sick the Milford Daily was way back when, when he was a paper boy, and speaks to the universality of its role in Milford, and that was the same for many other daily and, and local papers. Everything you wanted to know about the town and the world typically came through that local paper. So you had the local paper not only giving very detailed accounts of what was going on in your neighborhood or your community group, and crime and so on, but also their filtered view of the outside world, the state, the, the nation, the world. And um, it's almost impossible to replicate that. I'm you know, sort of stubbornly hanging on to that old view of what a daily newspaper was and what I do and trying to provide at least a flavor of the soup to nuts world around us. But it's with, with people have the option of going to Facebook and getting all the gossip of their town or you know, free news services that provide international news. It's it's hard to do that, but I think it's still worth trying. Yeah, and I, I think, think that's one of the reasons why it matters so much is because you're you're not getting the filter. You're just getting most people just mm -hmm. go into silos of information where they're just talking to like-minded people, their friends and family yep. who are already along of the same mind. And so there's there isn't that confrontation with the opinions of others and the facts of the matter. So. It's, uh, it's pretty detrimental all around. Yeah, and in my experience, I've seen clearly, and I started my citizen journalism back in 2006, 2007, formally as franklinmatters.org. Clearly, I agree, the Milford Daily News had been a regular presence in, next to me in most of the meetings, and then they gradually, after you know, changing people from year to year, then the person just disappeared. They just never came. Um, I have seen rarely 
uh, a recognized uh, person in on the online. But even in the last year or so, with continued changes in the industry, they haven't even appeared there in the news, which used to at least start at Milford Daily. Then Franklin also has his kind of local paper or the weekly called the Franklin Gazette. Um, those used to at least take the Milford reporting and then focus it on Franklin in the Gazette. Over time, that shifted. They also then put the Gazette as the front for the Franklin stories and didn't necessarily put him in Milford Daily News, um, which was an interesting juxtaposition. But I think one way to frame it, and we're certainly fortunate to have as many as we do have uh, sources in for local reporting here in Franklin. But the real issue, I think, is between the print, which is really gone, and the online, which in some cases is increasing, at least in Franklin, um, but in other cases it's not. And that's where uh, Dan Kennedy, uh, Northeastern, uh, GBH, uh, at least occasionally on uh, what was Beat the Press on TV, now it's a podcast. Mm -hmm. um, he's got another podcast on uh, what works, which is focusing on local journalism more from a national perspective and trying to find out what model financially works. There are some nonprofits operating. There's some uh, businesses with a business model trying to operate. How do you use the firewall? How do you manage your subscriptions? Do you pay for online? Do you put some behind, some front? All those issues in terms of financially doing it are, are really still being discussed. And I don't think there's been an answer yet. Um, it, it's, it kind of depends upon the circumstances. Um, and that's where, at least in my role as the citizen journalist, and this is my community service, now rolling what I do in with the cable operation to more formally have that package. So long-term, our vision, at least with Pete and I, is that you would come to franklin.news and be able to watch with the three TV channels, listen to the radio and or podcast, and then read the quote Franklin Matters digital news piece. And you would have, at least from a Franklin perspective, uh, that there and still have the choices between the town online and then Alan's contributions with Franklin Observer, uh, because the Milford Daily News, Metro West, Attleboro Sun, et cetera, those are all kind of divesting themselves of uh, not so much interest. I'm sure they really would like to be interested, but they just don't have the resources to devote the time to it. And right. it's newsrooms have just been decimated, and it's it's a challenge for the reporters, as much as they may want to get to the meetings, to be able to be able to actually go there. In going there, uh, you develop relationships with the the members of the uh, elected and appointed officials of the town. It's difficult to do that if you're just covering the meeting online and taking notes. There's no opportunity for follow up questions or to talk a little bit after the after the meeting is over just in in uh, you you touched on something um regarding publications to to fill the void uh, there are some there are some startups of different kinds again how the finances will work out what what will be a successful business model i think remains to be seen uh my old editor at the uh middlesex news ken hartnett uh joined with some of his uh journalism uh, pals from the Boston Globe to create a nonprofit called the New Bedford Light. Uh, Ken was, uh, Ken Hartnell was most recently editor of the New Bedford Standard Times. He's retired now, but he's teamed up with Stephen Taylor, former publisher of the Boston Globe, and some other heavyweights from the uh, uh, journalism world in Eastern Mass. The uh, New Bedford Light uh, has a uh, 
public uh, media business model. It's free for readers. It's funded through foundation grants, uh, sponsorships from local and regional businesses and, and donations. I've looked at it. It looks pretty good. It's not, uh, it's not as uh, thick, if you will, as a traditional daily newspaper, but it does, uh, it does cover the important issues and feature stories and covers the arts. Uh, you know, my experiment, Franklin Observer, which is just over a year old, is built on the Patch Labs model, which is, a, I guess, a branch of the Patch, a formerly AOL thing, um, which permits advertising. And I started my, my involvement with it with little expectation that there would be a financial side to it. But it turns out that there is. It's a pretty modest one at this point. You certainly couldn't live on it. Um, I'm probably making much below minimum wage. But it is a, a revenue stream. And that's been a pleasant surprise. And I, I think not to pick on the, the traditional people in this market, but the, as, as Jeff mentioned, the gatehouse folks and all the other big companies that took over daily publications all around the region, for the most part, I hate to be, you know, anti-capitalist, just sucked revenue out of it without reinvesting and sort of represented a, a dead hand of history on the news business here. As that influence has faded, I think there have been more opportunities for people to take the citizens' journal, journalism approach that Steve has taken, and my version of that, which is mildly capitalistic, and actually make a go of it. Because there is a need out there for, for advertisers to reach an audience. And if you can develop and present that audience, then you can develop revenue. And I think that's it, it's, a, it's a, a new wave of what the new media will look like, I think, starting to form now around the region. I'd, I'd also like to chime in and ask, uh, I think, what is a key question here? Uh, we're talking about the quantity of local news, uh, but at the same time, one of the other key elements for news in general, and Martin, Alan, Steve, uh, all of you are experiencing this in the first person, you as well, Chris, the notion that up until now, up until the internet, we have had uh, able and responsible people curating the news. And curation is something that means you've brought history, intelligence, context, meaning, insight to the reporting rather than just simply conveying the information. Uh, so blending the events, the who, how, what, when, where, why with, and, and again, the why is probably underscored here. Curation is something that is now remarkably absent as people just drink from the fire hose over the internet. And what they're experiencing is, you know, the de facto op-ed of friends who agree with them uh, and less. So I think we'd like to focus on not only the quantity of news going down, but the quality of it. And, and another aspect I'd like to bring up in addition to that, and I think it's a big part of the curation also, is the, the absolute lack, it would seem, of anyone taking a second look at what's being put out there in terms of punctuation tense agreement, anything. I mean, mostly it's just, it's just spewed out as though it was, I mean, there was always the, 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 the rap against Jack Kerouac that he didn't write. He just, he was a typewriter <laughs> and it was, it's just, it's, it's like one stream of consciousness with misspellings, uh, mispunctuation, everything. So I think that's a big part of the curation, but it's also something that offends me personally, when I have to read it and think this is out there, someone thinks this is this is properly done. I mean, it's it's like amateur night. You know, I think the trial that's uh, going on down in Texas involving Alex Jones, I think is going to have a lot 
to uh, demonstrate uh, those who perpetuate misinformation that there can be some accountability for that. So I'm hoping there'll be some uh, lessons in that because I certainly uh, have been profoundly disturbed uh, by what I read sometimes that it's just uh, nonsense out there. And where it began, um, and I'm not gonna lay blame on the newspaper industry, but uh, I saw this trend developing when uh, they allowed people to make comments under stories. And uh, it was the wild, wild west. It was anonymous and uh, you didn't have to have any accountability whatsoever. And you could chime in on these stories without uh, any editing or any filtering by uh, the paper. And, I, and I've seen that you know, many publications now have people monitoring those comments to make sure that uh, stuff that doesn't belong there uh, is taken out. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a good step in that direction. But uh, I just was alarmed when I, when I saw it. And I, I've noticed that now that people actually have to sign up and get an account and uh, we know who they are, uh, the commenting has really uh, been tailored back, but we still see uh, the mess out on in the Facebook world and Twitter has is, is got its problems. But uh, I can say uh, I'm watching that uh, trial and sitting back and saying, thank God, finally, if someone is holding uh, a, a misinformation campaigner accountable for what he did. And that was a disastrous thing that he did. And he's going to get whacked by this jury. I can feel it. And uh, I applaud the judge and how she handled the trial and uh, every step of the way. And the lawyers who took a gamble, I mean, there's not much money to be made uh, pursuing someone like Alex Jones uh, because he's going to fight them in bankruptcy. And uh, whether these folks will ever collect a nickel is uh, suspect and whether the lawyers will ever be paid for the tremendous work they've done. Uh, it's, it's almost a pro bono effort, but uh, I applaud them uh, for getting in the space and trying to wrangle some control in this uh, wild, wild uh, internet West. Yeah. Hopefully I, I even would... if the plaintiffs don't make, you know, a, a lot of money, not, not that, you know, they should, they should capitalize, but, if this, if uh, there's a uh, heavy penalty for Jones here, hopefully this will be a warning for some of those outlets that make their living spewing disinformation and incendiary copy. Again, the local experts we're speaking with today are Martin Luttrell, Steve Sherlock, and Alan Earls. Part of me wonders, like, has the damage been done? I think there's an inherent, to me anyway, uh, lack of credibility and stuff you can see in online unless it's from you know one of the high brand uh, recognized outlets because uh, we all know how um, information seems to have been tweaked on in online articles from from other things and skewed and edited i remember my first experience of this was probably around 2006 when i read an article and the editors were kind enough to say the uh, paragraphs in italics we made up and, uh, we, you know, we're just honest enough about it, but that lasted, you know, a few weeks or months and then whatever outlets what, where I just chose to write whatever fantasy uh, they liked in conjunction with, you know, some facts from the real world. And so it's, 
there's a, always this concern with anything online. It's like, well, can I really trust this if I don't know who these people are? Um, whereas something about the newspaper, uh, we had that, even though it's the you know inherently as vulnerable, we had that credibility in our minds that we could believe it. Uh, anyway, I don't know how do we fix the credibility of online journalism. Yeah, that's that's a key challenge, and particularly with the, uh, the dissolution of print, um, because I think with the print piece you get some of that credibility uh, and trust. And without print, and everything's on digital, it becomes that much harder. Um, I did a session at the senior center recently where over two sessions, we covered a pointer media wise for seniors course um, that focused on how to spot misinformation online. Um, and it was insightful for me for a couple of reasons. One, I had taken the course before I thought it was worth sharing for those who participated. It was insightful as well. And the one key piece that came out of it was uh, it does take time to find out and drill in as to whether that photo of, and we used one example of Sylvester Stallone that had a picture clearly had been cropped, you know, and it turns out when you looked at it, it was a picture of he with his daughters and he was bemoaning the fact that he now is shorter than his daughters because they have grown taller than he was. That picture was clearly he got cropped. Uh, his plain t-shirt got a logo on it. We won't even go there. And it started taking on a life of its own. And it takes time to do that research. And unfortunately, people are tending to go to their sites to find their info and not taking the time. The message effectively was, for those who wanted it, you know, tend towards the middle trusted sources, the further outside to one end or the other. You're going to get, you know, information that's potentially deviating from reality. And that that's going to be hard to adjust to. People are going to want to do what they want. I recall, and aging myself somewhat, but Simon and Garfunkel, the line said, you know, still a man hears what he what they wants to hear and disregards the rest. You know, I I have hoped that some of our youth will um, adjust and find better sources, but the fear is there that um, people will just read what they want and not take the time to find out what is. <clears throat> what is accurate and not. And I'm gonna just jump in and say, you know, I completely agree as, as an epidemiologist, misinformation and kind of how social media allows for it has been a huge, huge issue for the public health community. But I also, you know, the, the potential of social media and of, you know, our, our mobile phones, of people being able to record live, you know, the, the murder of George Floyd or other events, you know, mm -hmm. the orange line when it went up in smoke and to provide kind of two media outlets photographs, videos, like, so it's, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword mm -hmm. and allowing kind of the democratization, you know, people can blog now and, and write about their thoughts. So it's both a challenge for the print industry. And, you know, I live in Brookline and our Brookline tab closed its doors, the print, and now probably our best, you know, journalism is coming from our Brookline high school students for local um, kind of information, what is happening. So you know, it is it is a challenge. I do also hope that there are benefits, and it's exactly what you said, Steve, around trying to to allow the public to know what to appreciate and and how to to work with journalists in kind of new new ways. I do want to mention also that misinformation doesn't only come from the very far out. There was a piece in the Wall Street Journal this month. It was an opinion piece by the editorial board called "Medical Education Goes Woke." future doctors will be obliged to learn how health relates to systems of oppression. And it just goes on and on about how 
it's going to be a distraction for medical practitioners to learn about systemic racism. And every single person in the public health and medical field has denounced this editorial, which is, you know, they're not doctors, they're not public health researchers. And why are they, you know, commenting on curriculums for medical school? So I should say that it's not, you know, fringe opinions and, and sort of debates are also coming from mainstream media. So I don't, I don't want to only blame the online. Well, in the Wall Street Journal is a key piece. Um, I cut my subscription, which had been corporate funded for many years. Um, but once Murdoch brought that, the editorial quality of that paper has clearly gone down. Some of the business reporting is still worthwhile, but you know the editorial content, to your point, it's questionable at best. Yeah, I just oh, no. want to share one quick thought. In one of my other lives, I'm a freelance writer, mostly in business topics. And I was astounded about five years ago to be asked to write by a younger person who's a J school graduate to write on a topic. And I did my level best to produce a fair and balanced piece of information. There were two people pro one person again, all with excellent credentials. And that piece was sent back to me and said, take out the, the, the anti-person, the article supposed to be pro. Um, and I've never been experienced that before. And I said, okay, you do it. I'm not writing for you again. And that kind of astounded me that the note, I think, I think there's, I feel like there are some people who feel like, I don't know. I just, I was just astounded to be told, don't be objective. And there people can always argue about what objective is, you know, in our, in our small world in Franklin, Stephen and I approach topics a little differently, but I think we both have at our core, this notion that there should be room for two or more opinions on a topic. And I, I fear that that gets um, lost or damaged everywhere, not Facebook land, but in respected publications sometimes. Well, that's an interesting one, Alan, because what you were asked to do was to write an article and then they wanted to convert it to basically uh, polemics. Uh, I find it interesting yeah. also, you know, going way back when, I remember watching an episode of Nightline with obviously one of my favorite news people in the world, Ted Koppel, um, and uh, how we miss him. Uh, Ted introduced his guest that evening, Rush Limbaugh, as a polemicist. And yep. Rush had no problem with that, uh, obviously, yeah. because, you know, basically he does more op-ed than he does actual news. But they engaged in what I thought was a really, really crisp discourse through that half hour. And, uh, you know, it was uh, a great meeting of, of really two pretty bright minds, whether you agree with them or not. But the framing right out of the gate um, that both of them worked within, I think, was really important because we mm. knew what we were seeing and hearing. Um, and I think the blurring of lines between real journalism and polemics at this point is the thing that can be really distressing. We don't know. And of course, extending disinformation to what it could be, what it is, is when you have entire countries generating disinformation uh, mm -hmm. over the internet, you know, to promote and, and foment discord in the US. Mm -hmm. To go back to a point we may have dropped along the way, but I think in regards to the commenting piece, the key piece, I think certainly the some of the sites learned was anonymity doesn't work. Um, but I mm -hmm. think the next step is truly enforcing more of a universal ID, universal piece, because as Jeff mentioned, I believe still Facebook and Twitter and, and other places in social media, they allow for free creation of an account. Um, so you've got some spam accounts, you've got bots that are just automatically created. 
that their sole purpose is to spread the disinformation. Um, and that, that in itself is an issue that seems to worsen anything that goes on. So if we could get back to, and I know that in itself mm. is a topic of some discourse, um, but I think it needs to be a discourse item and not you know, a disconnect item, um, is what is a central ID and who truly is and how, who validates that so that you then can have a presence and be at least known for that presence. In some cases now, Twitter's got kind of a little blue check mark that I don't believe exists on Facebook, um, but that kind of step towards some trustworthiness may happen over time. It's gonna be uh, a challenge for sure. And I think that brings us again, back to the, the paucity of uh, local news coverage, because I think that's where it can start separate the fact from fiction or the fact from opinion, because you, you know that this is someone who's looking at your neighborhood in your area and you can develop, if you, you can develop trust that way. And I think that's what's important. And I think that's something that both Steve and Alan have done admirably. And again, it's, it's, it's just a matter of how much time you want to take. People just want it here, now, right away, boom, 30 seconds, let mm -hmm. me go. If even 30 seconds, I think we're back to Andy Warhol. Instead mm -hmm. of 15, second, 15 minutes, it's 15 seconds of fame. So it's 15 seconds of attention. Give it to me fast and mm -hmm. quick. If they can get it locally, they might get better served. In fact, I think they would be far better served to get it locally. And uh, Steve, you once mentioned that um, there was a map that showed where these, uh, you know, a lack of any kind of local coverage exists in the state of Massachusetts. Could you address that? The Dan Kennedy piece that I mentioned earlier as part of his uh, What Works, he pulled together a listing of uh, local news outlets, whether owned by corporations or however they're owned, local news outlets for mass. Somebody then took that spreadsheet and then mapped it geographically with the geo data, mm -hmm. et cetera, to produce a particular map. I can certainly find it and share it. I don't have it ready, but that at least would help. And Alan, that'd be something on a separate piece. I didn't find your mm -hmm. linking in, in that particular reference. And it certainly belongs there because yeah. the Franklin Town Outline is there, I'm there. Right. And that at least is a repository of such sources so that if somebody within mass, within kind of the journalism realm, here's a story that I don't know whether it's Peter Sham or Barnstable, they, they at least can start looking to communities or at least in those neighborhood communities and see and make some connections um, and find out what's going on. I'm, I'm going to take an opportunity here to date myself. Um, and uh, one of my great earliest adventures in my interest in broadcasting and, and communications. I got on a bus when I was 14, 60 years ago. And the bus they went, had buses when you were 14? They were, they were. <laughs> shovel, shovel, you know, you, you, you can either shovel the coal or pay the fare. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> get off my lawn. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, I took a bus to Worcester and I visited a few of the radio stations in Worcester. And of course, the one that really impressed me at that time was WTAG, the Worcester Telegram and Gazette's radio station uh, that operated in conjunction with the newspaper. And I guess I'd like to maybe get into this notion of efficiency. 
some of what makes local reporting possible is having more than one means of publication, which is what WTAG offered. And so the news department could generate material for broadcast and generate material for print at the same time. Uh, today, we see that in other venues, which I'll get into later. Uh, but, I, you know, Martin, perhaps you can enlighten us a little on what that means to have a news department that can distribute information through more than one method. So uh, when I started working at the Telegram Gazette in 1992, WTAG, which says the call letter stood for Telegram and Gazette, was a separate entity. And I think what happened with them was the same that happened with the, uh, back in the 60s. Uh, yeah, the Herald and WHDH. The, the Herald and WHDH were broken up by the feds because of, an I think it was considered uh, an antitrust uh, uh, monopoly kind of, a, kind of a thing. I believe that's what happened with TAG. So WTAG kept, uh, kept operating, but it was, uh, by that time, it was independent of the, uh, of the newspaper. That said, I can uh, only imagine that the uh, economy of scale having, having two different media getting, getting uh, the news out would have been pretty effective. The, the FCC at that time was looking to ensure that there were multiple voices heard in every single market. And they did a couple of things. They eliminated, uh, they reduced the number of television stations that any organization could own across the country. And they also uh, eliminated co-ownerships between TV, radio, and print. Uh, today, we no longer see that as an issue. And the FCC along the way reduced its rules effectively by now eliminating them. So where we are is it would actually probably be advantageous, particularly at the local level, where you have uh, news distributed through many means that can be aggregated uh, and reported because now you can get to eyes, ears, you can get to uh, more people through more venues, and it can bring back some strength to local reporting. Yeah, that's one piece that ironically came out of a survey we did locally here in Franklin to check uh, the community. And we did have some, I think it was less than 100 responses. So it certainly was not a substantial survey response, but it was insightful that it reinforced one of the pieces that I had started picking up with the conversations in the election prep was, and we were some of the uh, causes of it too, ironically, but some of the election information around certain candidates, some was available via video, some was available via audio, and some the candidates chose just to have a text format. So even from a disability and accessibility perspective, um, to try and present the same info in the three formats, um, and again, with our limited resources, we've been testing and I've piloted kind of an AI translation or transcription of audio. Um, that capability is also being built into, or at least considered for the video pieces as well. So when we do a Zoom town council meeting or a Zoom school committee meeting, we can get the audio and then transcription to the text so that somebody could watch, listen, and or read um, and have that accessibility uh, across the spectrum for those to the best that, uh, possible. That's a work in progress. 
Well, I think also one of the things with respect to local news is timeliness and, and the fact that you could reach experts who happen to be in your backyard. I think here in Franklin, obviously, uh, Kathy Liberty as local health expert was very involved along with uh, very frequent town reports issued with respect to the status of COVID and managing the pandemic at a local level was something that I think uh, our local leaders really sought to do crisply. And, and Franklin enjoyed, I think, a fairly robust set of local communications that were timely with respect to the rise and fall of waves of COVID, what to do about it, remedies, how to stay safe, and so forth. Uh, and I think that was a public service that I think frequently many people overlook. Yeah, they were, they were more, much more willing to accept the, the, the panic and the, the discourse on you know, the, the misinformation about it being just a, a government's uh, plot to scare everybody. They were, that was much more exciting. And I think that's a big aspect of uh, the Internet is you can bring a lot of excitement to it pretty quickly because you're just not accountable to anybody. A local uh, news coverage, you're going to be accountable. They can get to you physically to discuss things with you, I would hope. Uh, and they, you're just present. You're much more present. And whereas someone out there on, uh, in a vlog, which you know, there's nothing wrong with those, but someone who approaches that media as a, an attempt to, to scare and to frighten and create disc, you know, discord amongst local residents or any uh, residents of anything any area. I think they just, that's what they can do and they can do it effectively. Yeah. I think speaking of from my experiment of one, when I first started, certainly people within the town municipal building weren't sure what to make of me. Was this another gadfly? Was he going to look for trouble, et cetera? Um, but over time and my consistency in terms of just reporting the facts, just reporting and providing the links and the level of detail, has then broached so that I was able to during the COVID time. And ironically, Jamie and I uh, had agreed, or he, he had agreed to take the dance with me. So we were going to meet in the studio to do a Talk Franklin once a month. And then COVID hit, so we couldn't meet in person. And because the info was changing, we were for a period of time going weekly so that he and his voice could let the listeners and the residents hear. Uh, Tom Mercer, council chair, has to his credit uh, also agreed. So do we do our council quarterbacking? So the prior, the council meets on a Wednesday night, normally on a Thursday morning, we're doing a council quarterbacking. So what just happened? What does it mean for us as residents? So kudos to those two for being willing to, to participate in the audio format. Um, it takes time on their side. And I've certainly learned a lot. And I hope the listeners and readers have followed along and learned as well. Again, we're speaking with our local news experts, Martin Luttrell, Steve Sherlock, and Alan Earls. I, I keep listen, listening as I'm listening to uh, both uh, Steve and Alan, wondering how you'd feel if you could have a team of reporters at your disposal that you could send out to help you with all of the work. And that just runs through my mind as I listen to this discussion today. And we talk about how the newspapers were thriving and had reporters at every event. Now you two have publications 
and I wonder what, what your thoughts are. And Steve, I seem to recall that a few years ago, you actually did reach out to see if you could get people to join your team and wondering uh, if you were ever successful. And I don't know if Alan, uh, you have attempted that, but uh, be curious as to your thoughts on that as a concept. I, I haven't, but it would be great to get more help, obviously. Um, you know, neither Steve nor I can cover everything. I think we both make a pretty good effort at it, but um, that would be great. But of course, it would have to be on a volunteer basis at this point because neither of us really have budgets for that. But I did want to just roll back to, to Steve's description of his work, which has been fantastic. And I always look to Steve as, as kind of a model, having, having uh, gotten this ball rolling many years ago. But one thing that I've done a little differently, which harks back to my time at the Milford Daily News when my fearsome old editor, Nick Toskis, would scream at you when you came back from a meeting if you had no news. He said, didn't they do something wrong? Dig a little deeper. So, you know, in that spirit, I've taken swipes a couple times that maybe were off base. Um, for example, the uh, our food pantry bought a building and then decided it was the wrong building and sold it, um, pre- presumably at least having some big transaction costs in the process. And I wrote about that, probably not too sympathetically, subsequently I've had great conversations with the food pantry and I'm covering them in other ways. But my point is, I think a important role for local journalism is also to be a little bit of a goad to, to, to shake things just a little bit, not to be irresponsible, I hope, but to ask hard questions and say, what the heck occasionally, because a, it's necessary to get people in the public realm, hi Jeff, (laughs) to respond sometimes. It's really important. It's part of the dynamic role we all have. And two, I think it it gets readers more interested. You don't want people to just read the headlines and move on. You want them sometimes to say, yeah, what is going on there? I need to read about this planning board. Why is this thing, you know, getting kicked around so much or whatever? So that's that's a, a part of journalism that I think we haven't talked about, but it's traditionally a lifeblood of journalism. You you have this spotlight team at, at the Globe that goes out and discovers horrible things about the Catholic Church that nobody wants to talk about, and so on. So I'll close it at that. And can I yeah. jump in and just add, you know, to Jeff's point about, you know, what could we do, and to Pete's point about the importance during COVID, we in Brookline used ARPA funds to give our Brookline Interactive Group, our Media Education Center, money from the COVID response to improve their, you know, their ability to reach Brookline residents in recognition that actually public health and the COVID response requires that that infrastructure, that it's not just, you know, the technocrats or the epidemiologists, it requires the information to get to people. So I do wonder if we need to rethink budgets and ARPA money and other sort of, you know, in a in a world where we need information in a timely and very localized way, to respond to some of the emergencies that we're talking about, like how can we improve the budget so it's not just volunteers? And you know, one of my highlights since you know running for office is doing this radio station, and it's it's really enjoyable for me. But it, I feel like, you know, it, it there are people who would step in because they think local is really valuable. But the budget piece is, I guess, Jeff, to you, like <laughs> how, how is media and budgets for media and for local, you know? Well, um, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. I know that um, in the last session, we actually um, formed a commission to study local news and give us a report back. And I was a bit surprised at some of the backlash. And 
some of the thoughts that folks didn't want government meddling in uh, the newspaper business because they said, hey, we are here to be the watchdogs uh, of the government and we don't want you you know, financing our operations so that uh, uh, it, it takes away from our objectivity. And, uh, you know, look at, I, I read all the publications. I start my day reading, you know, I check my emails, I get the Franklin Matters, I get the Franklin Observer, I go to the Milford Daily News, I go to the Boston Globe, I read the Boston Herald, and then during the day I'm uh, poking into the New York Times and the Washington Post, and I will say I have paid subscriptions to every one of those publications that uh, that uh, uh, that I read because I do believe uh, that uh, if I want to get good quality news, I should pay for it. And uh, I do recall, Alan, that you and I had a uh, an exchange uh, about a story that I had read, and yeah. uh, to your yeah. credit. Uh, you ran my bitch fest. I, oh, I, let me let me retrace that. Um, you ran my you ran my piece uh, that uh, where I uh, you know had a difference of uh, opinion on that, and Steve also yeah. ran the piece, and uh, I sent the same thing and made a phone call to uh, another uh, statewide publication, and uh, they did not run the piece. But um, you know, I appreciate the the back and forth. I appreciate the exchange. Uh, we don't all see the world uh, the same way. Uh, in fact, uh, I emphasize that in my uh, my floor speech uh, on the climate bill. I was uh, reaching out to the governor, saying, "Hey, you know, there's no one path uh, to get things done. Sometimes you have to compromise and." Uh, you know, look at the views of, of both sides. And when both sides walk away a little unhappy, that to me seems where you've achieved some success. So uh, I'm all for the uh, exchange of ideas and I'm hoping we can come up with uh, something that uh, can get staffs for both of you. Uh, Alan, I thought you were, you were uh, going with the prospect that you, you had an income stream, but uh, it sounds like it's not big enough uh, to get a staff. But we got to figure that piece no. out because it's so important to have news. Well, it, and it is. Yeah, I think just very briefly, you know, the, the wonderful thing about this, I think we've talked about uh, economies of scale, but right now an individual with a cell phone can be all of those things, podcaster, videographer, and you know, written journalist, um, which is amazing. And we haven't seen how that's all going to unfold, but there are new mechanisms for monetizing content. So with luck, we will see a much more um, robust development, like you know, the advent of cheap paper and fast presses was in the 19th century, where suddenly we went from a handful of newspapers in the nation to thousands of them. So it could be something like that on the horizon, I hope. Yeah, I think that's the key is the golden age of the local journalism was when uh, it was also good for advertisers because those were the people who funded the the work pretty much. And I think that's an issue now is that uh, small local businesses um, are, are having trouble reaching people. So it's all the, the national chains, are the ones that are monopolizing advertising content. It's It's hard for a small local business to know where to advertise effectively mm -hmm. right now. And, um, you know, so if, Again, if we could think if there was a way to, so there's a need, uh, there's money to be spent. Um, uh, and so hopefully, you know, there's a way to try and connect those businesses with uh, new, those new local news outlets. So 
hopefully there's some optimism there as well. I can speak mm -hmm. uh, briefly to you know the expensive news. Uh, recording and producing news, particularly on television, basically uh, it was well said by Ed Morrow that you know television news is like writing with a 500-pound pencil. Um, <laughs> and it was particularly difficult, certainly back in the day, in the beginning. But even now, with digital capabilities and the facility that they offer for being able to produce material quickly, there's still a lot of legwork and there's still a lot of uh, people involved. I tried to produce a news magazine a few years back, uh, which was uh, Franklin Almanac. And we were able to produce basically only one episode a month when the goal was to get to one episode a week. And the one episode a month that we were producing, the annual cost of that, when I looked at the videography, the editing hours, the writing, um, everything that went into producing that program, it was costing us $75,000 a year for yeah. basically 13 episodes of programming. That's just not cost effective given that that was 10% of our total budget. So yeah. I made a year commitment to it, hoping that I could ramp it up to a weekly, which would have then been affordable and worthwhile. And although the program was very well received, it just wasn't cost effective. Um, add to that uh, the fact that we had to pull people off of other projects to be able to get that done, even in that long-term timely fashion. So I'd like to return to it in some way. I'd like to find a way to make the process more efficient to do television, even radio news and so forth, and, and to try to promote that local uh, information. Uh, but we are working on limited budgets. In fact, the budget we have today is about the same or slightly less than it was when we began in 2012, 10 years ago. So our budget at this point for cable local coverage, local programming, is actually headed in the wrong direction. And I'm fearful of what it will be over the next five years. So at this point, we are publicly supported by federal mandate. And that, of course, is something that uh, we hope can be mitigated in some way so we can continue. Unfortunately, as Alan points out, uh, the support for what Alan and Steve do is a volunteer effort, essentially, and maybe, maybe a little bit of money comes over the transom along the way. To get back yeah. to Jeff's point uh, question, um, I have had some success over time, but unfortunately it hasn't been sustainable because life happens. So there were in, there was an individual who was going to take kind of the other track while I focused on kind of the budget following the money. Somebody was going to take the planning board, design review committee, ZBA, conservation committee track. She was in training and then she got pregnant and decided to step back uh, with the theoretical agreement that when her child was old enough, she would come back. So this is still a couple of years away um, because life happens. Um, I did have another individual who helped with the community calendar aspect. So she was doing some of the reach out to clarification on you know, what was when, who was doing what, et cetera, from a calendar perspective. And that was a good resource. Um, and then circumstances changed on her part as well so that's one of the reasons why by bringing what i did so it's no longer just steve but it's truly the community effort bringing it into the community organization for cable to provide under that auspices 
the capability so that it's at least a little bit easier because it's already part of the cable charter to provide this kind of citizens access so they can produce and prepare, et cetera. And I'm willing to train um, and willing to share. And because the, the need, I think, is one universality amongst us all. The need is there. The question is how we can equitably um, and successfully maintain it and deliver it accordingly. That gets me to, I think, what probably is a final question for Martin, for Alan, Steve as well. Journalism major. Obviously, there are great journalism schools, Columbia School of Journalism, uh, and and many others. Uh, what would you recommend to journalism students, aspiring reporters uh, today? I would curiosity. recommend that. Yeah, curiosity um, obviously is uh, to be a journalist uh, to uh, get to uh, do in depth. Uh, stories to even covering uh, a governmental meeting uh, to be uh, prepared and willing to ask questions, sometimes tough questions, put somebody on the spot if they're, if they're uh, talking about something that seems to have some holes in it. Uh, but uh, taking a step back, uh, for somebody to get hired now as a journalist, even a beginning first job as a reporter at a newspaper, writing skills, photography skills, know how to post on social media. That's what uh, they're doing all the stuff themselves. They're taking their own photographs in a lot of cases. They're, they're tweeting. They're uh, posting on uh, video clips on Facebook and on uh, Twitter. Um, they, are, they have a lot of balls in the air at one time when they're covering a meeting. I'm, I'm seeing uh, friends of mine who cover uh, court cases. They're tweeting from the courtroom. Mm -hmm. uh, they're taking, uh, like I said, some some newspapers have dropped their photography staff completely, and they're relying on their their reporters to take their photographs with with cell phones, or if they happen to carry a thirty five millimeter camera, uh, do that. So they've got to be uh, they got to have uh, more skills than just writing. Although in, in the end, being able to to uh, organize information, interview, and and write coherently and quickly is uh, paramount. Well, another more perfect hour has flown by, and we have to say goodbye until next week. Now, if you would like to weigh in on our discussions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. Now, if you enjoyed our discussion, let us know. More importantly, if you disagree, all the more reason to let us know. Now, you can also share or listen to this program on any of our episodes. You can also share or listen to this program or any of our past episodes anytime. Our podcasts are available online. Just visit our website, wfpr.fm. And again, a big thank you to our guests, Martin Luttrell, Steve Sherlock, and Alan Earls. We covered a lot of local media ground today. And also a thank you to our more perfect roundtable regulars, Dr. Natalia Linos and our representative on Beacon Hill, Jeff Roy. And along with Peter Jay, I'm Nick Remesong. Thanks for listening and joining our shared journey toward a more perfect union. This is Franklin Public Radio.